The Psychoanalysis Podcast explores the ways that horror movies examine mental health issues. It deals with mature and sometimes disturbing subject matter, and it may not be suitable for all listeners. It is meant for entertainment purposes only, and not as a substitute for proper therapy. If you or a loved one are currently experiencing mental health difficulties, please contact your local mental health center. Breathe in. Breathe out. Breathe in. Breathe out. Breathe in. Breathe out. This is Psychoanalysis. Hi, listeners. This is Jen. And before we get started, I just want to say this is part two of our episode on workplace anxiety in session nine. Our part one episode dropped on Thursday. It should already be in your feed. And this is where we give our synopsis of the film. And Mike gives us a lot of information about workplace anxiety, stress we see in the workplace. So you don't want to miss it. And we also share our feelings check about the film. So you don't want to miss it. Make sure you listen to that first and then come right back here and listen to part two. I'll see you soon. All right. Well, so speaking of session nine, um, Gordon needs a job. That's my first one. And it just no, feels like a- I think that's like the most important thing is like mm. he needs this job. Yeah. Like that is the like the the bat body that runs through the core of the film. You know, everything is <laughs> yeah. motivated by that. Yeah. 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 I think about that a lot. Like, and I think when we talk about economic anxiety, I might suggest Amityville Horror for that, because I think about that a lot is like, what is it when this is obviously not a good situation that you're in, but you can't leave. You, can't, you because, have no choice. Like, yeah. Yeah. Like how bad would it have to be for you to actually quit your job? Like how many haunted no. ghosts would you have to see <laughs> yeah. in your workplace before you quit? You know, because then what are the the actual implications of quitting or like what yeah. if your house is haunted? What are you going to do? You know, you have to live somewhere. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And in this case, you have to really cut corners and create an unsafe environment, or at least Gordon believes that he does in order to get the amount of money he needs to support his family, which is, uh, right. uh, he has a new baby, um, and a, and a mm -hmm. wife, it's unclear what the wife, you know, if the wife is working or not, but, um, it, it's whatever the details are, which I think the movie wisely omits because we yeah. can fill in the gaps. <laughs> we just know this is a man on the edge. Like he feels mm -hmm. that this is the tipping point or, or uh, between being absolutely fucked and surviving. Right. And if, if you're absolutely fucked, that now includes an infant that can't care for themselves. Yes. You know, like we easily could have done this for new parenthood when we did that. Theme, totally. You know? Totally. Because that informs just as much, you know, but that is, you know, talking about parental leave, like that is something that if you have a child while you're working, you experience it. And I mean, you know, the person that physically has the baby is going to have a little bit more recovery time needed, but like fathers need to take leave time too. Oh, yeah. and fathers are up in the middle of the night and it is, it's hard. And ideally we would have a system that compensates for that. And I don't even necessarily mean by providing leave, but just by like being able to step in and support a little bit, maybe getting an extra person on this team just to kind of 
bridge the gap a little bit. And I mean, I know that probably doesn't necessarily make sense for this situation, but just like there is no support. It's like you keep working, you keep doing it, like fulfilling your expectations or your or we'll find somebody who will. Right. Know? And in this case, he's a contractor, you know, so he doesn't have yeah. some kind of system or corporation or or business owner. He is the business owner. And like the, the, that right. sort of no man's land that you exist in as a contractor, especially in America where there is no social safety net for those people there you know in europe like they give massive amounts of maternity and paternity leave and there's an incredible in most of you know europe and especially like the scandinavian countries an incredible social safety net so that you don't have to feel like there's no one supporting me and if i mm -hmm. just right. live i might die you know i mean that's it's oversimplifying it a little bit i feel like that's what we're seeing here and this movie opens with the radio um playing and i, I think there this is like very similar to texas chainsaw massacre actually in, the, in that sense <laughs> of like it sets the environment with what you're hearing this little little snippet on the radio and i i wrote it down um the hard paying american yeah and all these people hard working it's like a, yep. a, they took her germs kind of thing and you know yeah. I, I said earlier this was recession it's i sort of lump it in with the recession in my mind somehow because this mm -hmm. is all kind of my youth but we forget that in that like post 9-11 or like approaching 9-11 era there was so much like fomenting hatred of of immigrants because there was this sense of jobs being less available and more scarce mm -hmm. for um for americans even whether or not that was a fiction or immigrants were being scapegoated <clears throat> they were but mm -hmm. you know that was the that's the environment that this is all cooking in yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. One of the things I appreciate about how this movie opens is you get an incredible amount of detail in a short amount of time by allowing us to tour the facility along with Gordy and Phil. Yes, it's a great, mm -hmm. great move. Uh, yeah. And that 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 mm -hmm. uh, tour guide guy who's a really funny little character. Um, Paul Guilfoyle. Yes. yes. Also of CSI. <laughs> but you, you see the scope of this project and what they're going to have to undertake. Oh my God. Because without totally. that, you know, you see like Phil say three weeks and Gordy say two and without the tour, you don't really know, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. You don't really understand. But like once you've traveled through this for about, I think it's almost 15 minutes that mm -hmm. they walk through this and you're just like overwhelmed by the enormity of it. Now I don't personally know what goes into asbestos removal and pulling fiber, but I do know that that is too large of a job for anyone to do in one week. Yeah, when he says oh, a yeah. week, you're like, that's insane. Like, like, unless wait, you- you mean a year, right? Like, unless you had a crew of like a hundred men, you know, or, and women. Right. <laughs> um, sorry, like- uh, <laughs> Oh, women? <laughs> well, it's funny to me that they're all smoking also while talking yes. about asbestos. Um, mm -hmm. We had a, we had some, my dad had some contractors come into the house at one point to look at something in the basement and they were they got into something and they were like oh this is asbestos fiber we can't be in here and then they left and were standing outside um of our of our house calling their boss while like chain smoking mm -hmm. cigarettes contain asbestos <laughs> anyway but it's it's yeah that this kind of work is like also some of the most dangerous work for the people mm -hmm. who are doing it um mm -hmm. yeah i there's uh i had a friend whose father passed away of like mesothelioma from doing like similar mm -hmm. work you know it's just and and in the covid environment like their mask safety i was like oh my god they need to be wearing those yes. masks that guy's like keeps pulling it down he's got the straps on his head wrong and i'm like no no um mm -hmm. that's an aside sorry i got sidetracked well i think what you see here is how Gordon's judgment, his desperation has so impacted his judgment. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
he doesn't bid for the job. He begs for the job. And it's like that scene. I think it's, is it, what's the character's name? The, the gentleman who's giving them the tour? I can't. Bill. So Bill. CSI Bill. Yeah. When he puts the gum in his mouth and you see the wheels turning, like you can see him going, I can, ha- I can get this job so much cheaper. Like he will do whatever I want. Like he's not being a friend in that moment. He's looking like I can exploit this labor. Like, and it's just like a mm-hmm. subtle little acting choice he makes, but that was the read I had. But it's not only the exhaustion that goes into like underbidding for this job, but look at how he manages his crew. He can't manage this team anymore. This job has no margin for error. Mm-hmm. And yet he brings Phil and Hank together, two people that are explosive and <laughs> yeah. do not like one another. What the hell? Right? Yeah, yeah. He hires his nephew, who doesn't seem to have any experience using any of this equipment. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. And he suffers from nyctophobia, which means in a job where you have to move really fast and you're going to be in these tight, dark spaces, you have a new guy that doesn't know what he's doing and is afraid of the dark. Yeah, totally. Just instead of hiring more experienced people like Craig McManus. Mm -hmm. Was that Larry Fassenden? Yeah. 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 Just coming in at the last minute, very in a very funny cameo to me. Yeah. Yeah. So Gordon is just completely overwhelmed at this point. And it shows like having one skill set, like being able to pull asbestos really well, doesn't mean you have the skills to like run a crew and Mm -hmm. manage your books and bid for jobs. Yeah. Or save for the economic downturns that eventually are going to come. Like there will always be a dry spell. You need to have stuff set aside to go through that. Totally. Yeah. And and it is like managing takes time also, you know, like I, we kind of restructured my department recently. And one of my friends who used to work, be like be a writer when the, with the same title that I am, she moved into managing the team. And so she essentially for a while was doing that job and doing a, the full-time writing job because she wasn't, nobody was really accounting for how much time it takes to just make sure everybody is doing what they're supposed to yeah. do. You can't do that and work at the same time. Yeah. And it feels That's like common he theme just in- my, my life <laughs> yeah so. yeah yeah he just hasn't allowed for that and hasn't doesn't really have I guess I don't know if he it's that he doesn't have the experience to know that he needs to allow for time you know to do that but. I think like it's clear that the his psychological the stress of being a new father the economic stress of worrying about providing for his family is you know, derailing his judgment, like it's Mm -hmm. clouding his judgment because like you get the sense that he wasn't always this foggy brained about everything. Like Phil is looking at Mm -hmm. him like, and they said one of them, I think Hank maybe says at some point in the movie, like, Oh, Gordo never stresses out. Like this is, you know, Mm -hmm. um, he, he, I hope you have some of your uncle's genes because this man never cracks under pressure, but it's like, he is about to explode, you know? Right. He calls him the Zen master of calm. Yes, which is mm-hmm. not what we're seeing. Oxymoron. Yeah. But then in the next sentence, he's like, but I think he's about to break. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. All right. So which is it? And I, yeah. that's kind of the, the takeaway here is that um, all of these things are, are pushing this man to his breaking point. And that's mm-hmm. where we are when we begin the film. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like this, this is a contracting job and it's a physical job. And I think in like my first husband did this kind of job. He was a house painter. And so I know that in that industry, 
there are kind of two kind of mentalities. There's the like, oh, I'm going to show up today. I'm going to get it done. And then there are the people that are successful that are like, okay, this is how we're going to manage this. But it can feel like if you're not quite sure how to do that, it can feel extremely stressful. Like you're always behind. You always have to be like catching up to this deadline that you arbitrarily set or, oh shit, I forgot to pay my bookkeeper, you know, or I forgot to send these checks out. And it's just, it's really stressful. And I think that's what we see. Yeah. Jen, you mentioned, or I'm sorry, Laura, you mentioned like the asbestos going into the lungs. And I think in this case, asbestos is a kind of a metaphor for the way mental illness can borrow in is really wonderful Mm -hmm. in this movie. Mm -hmm. You know, you you have this idea of these tiny dust particles that kind of finagle their way into their lungs, and then they tend to incubate at that point, and they damage all the tissue around it. They invade other parts of the body. They spread throughout the body. And that's what mental illness is doing here not that it always does but in this case you have whether it's trauma or whether you have like the psychological toll the job is taking on him like this mental illness has really borrowed borrowed itself into gordy and Mm -hmm. it's starting to not only affect like his work life it infects it affects his home life it affects all the important relationships in his life it affects how he takes care of himself to the point where he can't any longer and i Mm -hmm. love the idea of how it spreads here to the point where it's imperceptible at first but then it becomes something that if you don't manage it it will kill you Mm -hmm. absolutely i think it's a really great metaphor it reminds me a little bit because we just covered um relic two very different mm-hmm. movies but it had a similar mm-hmm. you know the the mold in that movie sort of as a metaphor for dementia and deteriorating mental you know stability that this has a very similar feeling to me and i think it plays into what you were saying a little bit earlier about the hospital kind of being a character because there's there's some you could sort of divide this movie into the hospital as a character and Mary as a character and like Mary and the hospital mm-hmm. have kind of been wed as it were for the themes of this film. And what struck me upon this watch, and I think it hit me when we were watching Hank, like with the, um, you know, uh, coin slot machine brick in the wall that there, that this hospital preys on the individual mental weaknesses of each character. And it was bringing out the worst in them, much like the asbestos would, infect and spread you know it's like the the this environment that they're in is the straw that breaks each of their camel's backs in their own way and i think that's why the like red herring quality of not knowing which character might be doing the bad things or is about to do a bunch of bad things works because even though it is ultimately gordon that kills everyone you know and snaps it's like each of them have some kind of fatal flaw that this that mm-hmm. this environment is is working on and i you know obviously we know what it is with gordon with hank it's like his greed and selfishness and non-committal nature um mm-hmm. with the the character that wanted to be a lawyer mike. mike mike he's it's kind of like a thwarted intellectual pride like he kind of gets so sucked into this mystery with with mary and with thinking he knows everything and can figure everything out that he sort of fails to support the people around him mm-hmm. and then uh the mullet kid is just he's just <laughs> Jeff. yeah he's just well it's the dark yeah just know? he's just afraid just... of the dark and, and phil yeah phil is like the only one i couldn't quite figure out other than it's you know his hatred his of hank and his anger toward being you know cucked essentially you know yeah. 
Which I wanted to ask about that. What do y'all make about his phone call with Amy where he says, like, do you think he made it up that Hank no. told no, her? No, I think that that was one of the red herrings, yeah. Yeah, I think that he did make the call because that's such an easily disprovable lie. Do you know uh-huh. what I mean? They like could just call Amy and be like, back up. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, but do we think that Hank actually went home and told her he was yes. packing up? Yeah. And then came back. Yeah. He yes. might have like forgotten something or who knows, you know, mm-hmm. he might have just or want to get more of he probably might my, my read. He might have come to get more treasures from the weird yeah. treasure oh, hole. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and then, you know, that's when Gordon got him, you know, with the because lobotomy. He, he buries the treasures back in the wall when mm-hmm. he finds them. And then you have that ah. wonderful shot where it pulls back and you see that it's oh, a crematorium yeah. in the morgue. Mm-hmm. So my mm-hmm. understanding was like he went home with when the crew went home because they weren't supposed to be there after dark, told Amy, like, peace out, I'm out of here, and then mm-hmm. went back thinking like no one else is going to be around. Yeah, now I can mm-hmm. steal all this without looking like having a weird, suspicious, heavy bag of shit with me or whatever. I mean, yeah, if you start to like really pick it apart, you some of the logic might not be airtight, but I, that that is how I yeah. read it, you know, and that's, and the the Hank thing is the red herring. And I, what yeah. I really like also is that there, there, this movie does some subtle things where uh, earlier when they're talking about lobotomies and then they're like, the only treatment is recommended is sunglasses. And when we first see Hank again, oh, he's wearing uh-huh. sunglasses. That was mm-hmm. just another little thing that I hadn't picked up on the first couple yeah. times oh, I watched I it. Yeah. That. And I was like, oh, that's how, that was a hint that he's been lobotomized, you know? Yeah. Well, and I think the reason that it, I was like, well, shit, was it real? Is because they questioned that. They were like, no, we're, you're the only one that heard her mm-hmm. say that, you know, which I think is just such a smart little, like, just token drop. But yeah, he probably did just yeah. go tell her that before. But I wanted to ask, or I wanted to talk just a little bit about his exit plan, too, mm-hmm. because his, he's got this great life built up at casino school, which I think <laughs> is, is so, it's like ostensibly funny, but you know, it's also like just such a low stress mm-hmm. seeming job, but is probably extremely stressful if it's anything like waiting tables, you know? And it's funny, it's like a grass is always greener kind of situation because he hears this story about a guy getting tipped with a Porsche, but like that's one story and there's a reason you don't hear every casino worker talk about that. It's because most people probably don't tip shit, you know, or they probably like treat you, like get mad at you when they don't win. You know, it's like every job is going to have its perks and it's going to have its downfalls. Yeah, they they really linger on his talk of the exit plan. And I can't remember exactly what was happening. I was hoping I'd written it down, but I I didn't because I remember that moment striking me. It's like they're intercutting between something Mm -hmm. when he's talking about those exit plans. And like, you know, in that moment that this is a completely hollow fantasy, like Mm. it's an escapist fantasy for somebody that's never really going to be able to escape yeah. the grind of shitty jobs because that's who, that's who Hank is you know and he hasn't mm-hmm. but it's also like not entirely Hank's fault like yes this guy's a piece of shit like a classic fucking piece of shit like he would be the step the archetypal like stepdad or something you know yeah mm-hmm. but but like they're all essentially he's like you got to have an exit plan and, and that idea is so intertwined with capitalism and with not being able to escape the workplace and and the necessity that we have to to be like scrape scraping by and that's like the it's almost it reminds me of something that i can't put my finger on but it's like a like waiting for godot thing like if we just Mm -hmm. like if you have an exit plan you'll get out but you know they're never getting out 
Well, and it also speaks to like a job that's not sustainable in the long term. Yeah. You know, it's like I have had bosses where I'm like, don't you realize that you will keep your employees if you treat them better? Yeah. Oh, that's and a whole. you pay them better? Right. <laughs> it's this, this you know, uh, yeah, that you could almost like assess if if the workplace and capitalism was a person, like you could diagnose Mm -hmm. it with all sorts of different mental health conditions because it's like that make it unable to see that these very simple things we could do if we just took care of each other, you know? Right. Yeah. And that turnover, high turnover Mm -hmm. is a huge like indicator of an unhealthy work environment, you know? Like I've had a supervisor tell me they didn't like their employees to get comfortable in their job because that made them less creative. Oh, fuck off. I'll um, fucking lick my balls, you piece of shit. God, yeah. I wonder what breeds creativity. It's probably like constantly fearing for your job. Uh, No. Exactly. Mm. Off. Sorry. A couple of things that like stood up during or stood out when. Hank is kind of giving that talk because he's with Jeff at the time. Mm-hmm. Number one, you get to feel like this is the lies that we tell ourselves. And I think all of us have told <laughs> ourselves like when we are in a job, we don't love that. It's not a forever thing that we're going to do something like this is just temporary. And I wonder how many of us have said like this job is temporary. And then like de- a decade later, we find ourselves like we're still in it. <laughs> Gee, I wonder what um, that's like. Go on. I know. Right. Um, <laughs> But that happens, I think, with a lot of us. Um, Mm -hmm. It also, it sets up, at least in theory, it shows how Gordon doesn't have that luxury because he's tied Mm -hmm. to a family because, like, it's his business. Mm -hmm. And if his business goes down, like, what is he going to be able to kind of do at that point? But also during that scene, like, Hank's not wearing a mask. But he keeps encouraging Jeff not only to wear a mask, but also tells him, like, look, you don't want to be doing this job forever. Like, this is not mm-hmm. a forever job, dude. You don't want to be breathing this stuff in. Mm-hmm. And I think Jeff makes the comment, like, well, why aren't you wearing a mask? He's like, it's too late for me. Yeah. Like, he already knows at this point, like, I'm mm-hmm. fucked. Like, why mm-hmm. even bother? You know, it would be giving up smoking after you already have lung cancer right. at that mm-hmm. point. Like it's too, the time has passed, but even right before that scene, like, you know, one of the things that Hank's favor is it's, it's right after the scene where he's like breaking Mike's balls about, you know, not being a lawyer and being on the one year plan at uh, like Tufts law or whatever. But he's like, Mike, I was serious back there. Like you're way too smart for this job. Like you should be not, doing this you know you should be out there like actually in you know as a lawyer and you see the wheels turning for mike and you get the feeling like with mike's backstory his father is the da and not going to law school was like kind of an act of youthful rebellion like i don't want Mm -hmm. to turn out like my dad and then you get stuck in a job for six years and it's i'll just do it for a little while and you wake up and your 20s are gone Mm mm-hmm yeah, I my first husband would talk about the jobs that you the, you take a shower before you go to work and the jobs where you take a shower after mm-hmm. you get home from work, you know, and just kind of the difference. And there have been a lot of times, especially when I was teaching, when I really longed for a job that I could just leave when I left the building and I didn't, it wasn't like an intellectually curious job. It was just more like a 
like a soothing like I thought about like just uh not I would never want to go back to waiting tables I don't think but like being a hostess you know a job that I could just yeah it, it ends when your shift ends yeah and you are know? you doing something with your hand you feel like you're doing something right. real in a way that like in a way that often jobs at least for me I mean not teaching but for for like working in marketing or something like it doesn't feel like yeah. you're, you're doing anything of like it like you know on some level that your job like if you stopped doing it it would not have zero impact on the world. <laughs> like, you know, and yeah. it's like, um, yeah. But I mean, even like, I don't know, like construction or something that is a necessity, yeah. but that you're, it just wears your body down instead of wearing yeah. your mind down. Like teaching wore my mind down, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. but this is going to wear their bodies down. Yeah. And the only, that I just recovered my thought, which is like, there's this myth also, uh, like, yes, obviously pulling asbestos in, in this sort of incredibly unsafe environment is not a, a a thing to aspire to, but there's this like myth of like, quote unquote, unskilled labor, like um, mm-hmm. pe- people who do mm-hmm. uh, like blue collar work or who wait tables or who work at the grocery store or who pack boxes at warehouses. And that that's that idea, like idea, like, oh, they're on, it's the idea of that on some level says you're disposable. Um, right. But it's like, that is just a a myth because like if all those people stopped doing we we've seen that right that's what covid yeah. was is like you know like oh we realized that those quote unquote unskilled jobs that are like the people that are get shit critical. on most are the most critical mm-hmm. to the functioning mm-hmm. of day to day life and like somehow <laughs> you know there there was this comic that this comic panel that was like oh me in spring of 2020 like this is going to create a revolution we're finally going to realize that like labor is vital and that we're we all, we're all in this together and then it was like cut to one year later menus are QR codes now nothing else has changed yeah which is like it's a very fun, funny comic but like so grim it's like if that didn't do it if that didn't really wake us all wake up, you know, again, the systems of power are so entrenched and mm-hmm. all of this, you know, and, and you can really get down on yourself for not, not leaving that job, you know? And, but again, yeah. it's like, that is not, you just can't, we, our, our society hasn't allowed us to do that. In some ways we are all, are all prisoners of the paycheck of our health insurance of all these things. Like, and mm-hmm. I think America is just the most crass example of it because we yeah. have all the resources where we really could, take care of our people and we just we really really don't that's because the people at the top benefit from the people at the yes. bottom not having those resources yep, yep. And jen you jen you were talking about a moment ago like the body breaking down and the kind of mm-hmm. work you do where you have to like clean up after one of the things that it's a a, a topic we return to a lot on the show but like men not asking for help and that's uh-huh. something you see here. And to me, like the most, one of the most powerful scenes in the movie and like Peter Milan's best scene is Gordon. Like when Jeff approaches Gordon, when Gordon is outside and you think he's on the phone with Wendy, um, Jeff is like, hey, you know, I want to say thank you for getting me this job and I'm going to work so hard for you. What Jeff is trying to do, but he can't do is ask Gordon if he's okay. Like he just can't bring himself to say, to, to, to put into words what he can so clearly see is that like Gordy has broken down. And, mm-hmm. you know, when he asks, you know, Gordy is like holding back tears in this, he's like choking them back. And like the delivery that Peter Milan gives when he's asked like how Wendy is doing, it's like, she's tired. Like he draws like that tired out mm-hmm. and the way he says it, like it speaks volumes and you see like, 
the lines in his face just pulling and he looks so craggly and he's like kids like they just wear you out Mm -hmm. and you see (laughs) throughout this and it's one of the things it's like we're allowed to say in abstract that like raising children is hard being a parent is difficult in an abstract non-personal way like we're all allowed to say it it's okay however if you verbalize your own personal struggles as a parent, if you were to say like, like, and I've said this before, like I didn't really enjoy being a dad from like ages of six months until my daughter was like almost three. I didn't enjoy it. I'm like, they don't do anything except make life really difficult. (laughs) You know, and I was seen as horrible for that. Mm -hmm. But whereas if I think if you, if you are able to at least vocalize that it, it almost makes it the the load a little lighter you know it does but and it doesn't say it you don't loud. love it's, your child it's right. just it's just it's true it's true right? <laughs> like, yeah because those things can be true at the same time yeah. you can love your child but also mm-hmm. like be really stressed out by but them. we're not allowed to say that like you're looked right at we're allowed to say you're the one at, thing and we're expected to if you personalize not. it you're looked at askance and you see mm-hmm. like Gordon struggling with these demands of parenthood, like in, in working in this competitive marketplace and this demanding marketplace. And look how Emma is presented in this movie. Like there's one picture of her in the wallet where she's smiling, but then mm-hmm. you see dozens of pictures. And there's one moment in the film that stands out. Like you have, like it's shown in the seclusion room where it says like, they thought I was nuts. And it's like a, a gorilla holding what, what, like a doll that looks like a baby and then like maybe mm. a grandmother holding a baby and it cuts to the next thing you see is a picture of the christening and emma screaming and the two parents looking so tired mm. you see that and whenever you hear like a vocalization of emma in the movie she's always crying or screaming and they're always asking about like oh that ear infection she has that still Mm -hmm. like almost judging him as a dad like can't you get your kid to be healthy but Mm -hmm. this ear infection won't go away and like if you're a young parent you know like kids get ear infections like motherfuckers like they just get them all the time like what's going on and like if they get a cough, especially like depending on the age they are, there's not much you can do except just kind of wait it out. Like a lot of medicines cannot be taken by kids that are under five. Mm-hmm. So such yeah. as the COVID vaccine. Just the physical toll of this job, just mm-hmm. like not just like the, 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 the danger of like handling this hazardous material, but like doing this thing like where you're like setting up all this equipment and moving all this machinery and you're up on ladders and you're pulling shit down and you're carrying shit out like and gordy like when you watch this movie like he's in his 40s and it looks like a hard 40 years yeah i was gonna say like when you when the movie opens and you're like oh he's a new dad it's it's a little unusual because you're looking at him like this guy looks like he's had a hard and he's not you know well into his 50s you know they they do imply also like oh they were trying for a really long time to have Mm -hmm. a kid and like so you just get the sense of like nothing has come easy to this man you know everything every every day is a fight to the bitter end you know and it's like it's finally wearing him down really great performance from that actor like it's like you said when it's just tired like you really feel it Mm -hmm. yeah but at the same time like when you are picking something up and moving it and putting it somewhere else there's an accomplishment (laughs) that happens there you know and it's like 
there's a personal, like there's control that he has there, which when you have a crying baby at home and it doesn't matter what you do, they will not stop crying. Like there's such a feeling of failure that comes over you. So I could see him like wanting to spend the night in his van, even if his family were fine, like, because they're like, I have control over this situation because I can, and I look at that with my own work. Like a lot of my freelance stuff is so independent and I have total control over it. And when interactions with other people are hard for me, I find myself retreating into that kind of work to avoid like the more intimate situations that make me feel uncomfortable with some of my past stuff. So I could see him kind of going in there, but then when that makes, makes you feel like a failure also it's like there is no accomplishment that he has that he's proud of you know Mm -hmm. and it's just becomes this big spiral well speaking of the weak and the wounded let's talk about simon i'm simon which that oh that voice i don't know what it is about like the the voiceover but the choice to make it so clearly a voiceover and not part of the scene is so like eerie it, you know it's so there's yeah there's the the three characters that live inside of mary yeah. and then there's this i'm not it wasn't clear to me if it was simon or it was this other voice that comes over mm-hmm. gordon like um what does it say to gordon when he first walks in hello um, gordon <laughs> there's yeah. he says something else like oh my god mike you just give me chill. <laughs> well he it's like he says something like don't do or like just do it Gordo. He says, "Do it." Just he goes, like, "Do it, Gordon." And, and like, that, that voice him. almost feels like synthetic or something. It really reminds me of the voice mm-hmm. in, and maybe this is a reference, you know, to Session Nine because obviously it was many years later. It was um, and they look like people. There, there's mm-hmm. like it almost like like the the rest of the ambient sound in the scene drops away, and you just hear this voice almost like it's coming from inside your own head. You know, it's a really good, effective mm-hmm. use of that. But I was it wasn't yeah. clear to me if ever at any point in the in the movie if that was really like the spirit of Mary or one of Mary's personalities, or if that was just, you know, the pain of all these people that passed through this hospital sort of became the catalyst for Gordon's final Mm. breaking point. I would Mm. also like to talk about the DID thing with Mary and those characters, but it was just a little unclear to me if we were supposed to read it that way. But I I also like that ambiguity. Um, Mm -hmm. So I don't know. To me, Simon whether it's Mary or whether it's Gordon, Simon doesn't make anyone do something that at least a part of them didn't already want to do. Yes, Mm -hmm. yes. He's not forcing them. Like there's this part that lived in Gordon that wanted to not be a father, that did not want to be a husband, that wanted that removed from his plate, that Mary didn't want, you know, wanted to lash out her at her brother after scaring him. Like Simon is just that, that, that id or that, that part of your, your brain that just says, do it because the id is yeah. what stops you from, but right. Removes um, the, the boundary right. for you. That was removed. Thank you. Gordon's not forced into murdering his wife, his mm-hmm. dog and his daughter. He does it because in that moment he wants to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you know, I think many parents have had moments like that, you mm-hmm. know, and it does not mean it's like what you were talking about earlier. It doesn't mean you don't love your children. It doesn't mean you forever don't want to be a parent. It's just that it's really fucking hard. Mm-hmm. There are probably times when, especially Jeff, when he's like, I don't want this job anymore. Fuck this. And he runs out, you know, it's, I, we yeah. all have those moments. You know? Yeah. And I think actually like I, I'm, I've 
I can't remember like the details of the specifics, but in my years of consuming true crime crap, like I've encountered a number of like those family annihilator cases. Like you said, this might have been based on a, a real one with this Rosenthal person, but often there is like an economic element to it mm -hmm. and then a mental health element and then some kind of stressful catalyst. And I think it can mm -hmm. vary in its in it in what's going on with it. Um, there's some, you know, family annihilators that are clearly just like psychopaths. And then you have like a Chris Benoit who is like dealing with like traumatic brain injury. There's this famous one that last podcast covered who basically like at some point he just was like, it's too expensive for me to keep up this family. And they had this huge house and all this stuff. And he this guy was just like a psycho because he just fucking it was very calculated. He killed everyone did things to make it seem like they were like um on vacation and then like left town and he just like they didn't find him for like 30 years and he had picked up and just created a totally new life i'm completely blanking on his name but it's a very famous family annihilator case but i there is almost always this element of there's an economic element in almost all of them not that that's an excuse absolutely not right. obviously but it, it, you do have to like read that as part of it it's uh, everybody has different uh, senses of ethics or, or, or mm -hmm. brain uh, makeup and economic stress is often the, a trigger point for those things happening. Yeah. Well, and when like he talks about like, that's the weak and the wounded is that they're the, the economic stress is that wound, yeah. you know, and that is what makes it easier to remove the barriers that we keep that keep us from doing those things. We know we don't really want to do, yeah. but that they just pop into our brain, you know, and that's, I think, kind of what you were talking about. Well, and I also get the sense that Gordon deeply regrets what he's done by the end yes. of it. Oh, like, absolutely. Yeah, he's just like very oh. like, what the fuck? Like when he says, I want, he says, I want to go home. Like, I do uh -huh. feel bad for him in that moment. It's almost like something he was possessed and he did this thing that can't be undone. I mean, right. it doesn't excuse it. It really doesn't. But it's it's still heartbreaking. Yeah. Yeah. That last phone call is just heartbreaking. You can have empathy for people that have done horrible things yeah. that they regret. Mm -hmm. I think that's, um, a, that's, yeah, you're right. That's an okay thing to do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They, so that line, I live in the weak, in the wounded mm -hmm. dock. Like, I love that as a closing line. It's a great line. And I love that as a concept. Um, mm -hmm. As a clinician, um, I try to remind others that, like, you are not your weakness and you're not your wounds. Like, all of us have these moments of weakness. All of us have these wounds that we carry with us, but we're not the summation of those wounds. We're not the sum of these these weak moments that we have. And like we are all like we all experience moments of tremendous vulnerability throughout our lives, but that doesn't make us weak. Um, yeah. But what what I where I where I see that line now is like it's very easy and even tempting in those moments to let that Simon part of our brain warm itself in because mm -hmm. it, it kind of like, it allows us to basically take our hands off the wheel and say something or someone else is in control. And I think Laura, to your point, that's maybe where we talk about like the DID that uh, mm -hmm. is associated with this movie. Yeah. And yeah. and what, just not to quote Marcus Parks from last podcast again, but again, this really reminds me of his little mantra, which is like our mental illness isn't our fault, but 
oh, fuck, I'm fucking it. It's our responsibility. It's not your fault, but it is your responsibility. So that's the dichotomy you have to live. Well, and I wanted to say real quick before we talk about that, though, is that it's not, it's like we are all weak and vulnerable too, but sometimes that's a good thing. And that's what therapy is, is exposing Mm -hmm. those vulnerabilities. And because like if you have your barriers up all the time, you're never going to heal, you know, and he's never going to have that chance to say, Part of me regrets being a father, you know, but it's just that he doesn't have a safe way to do that. He doesn't have a structure to express that, which is what you were talking about earlier about like not being able to ask for help because of, you know, these structures that we build around what masculinity is. If we don't face our wounds, they do over. They they, fester and they, they, yeah. Because, and we act on them and not act on, and we don't, we don't understand that they aren't us, you know? Yeah. And they turn into Simon, Mm -hmm. you know? Let's talk about the idea. Did time. We just did it <laughs> on him. Sorry. <laughs> just really briefly, because I, you see it presented two ways here. You see it presented through like the multiple personality disorder, through uh, Mary's three alternative identities with Billy, Princess, and Simon. And I love, I mean, multiple personality disorder is exceedingly rare. It is not something you're going to see as often as it's presented in the media like if you follow just follow like fictional storytelling you think it's like super like it's basically as common as a starbucks in every corner right basically Mm -hmm. but it's a very rare thing it's even a controversial like you know there's some people that say it doesn't really manifest the way that it's depicted in the media and all this it's like it ain't what mm -hmm. you think (laughs) but it is real right I, I actually don't know. I honestly like, I, I don't, sure. yeah, it's one of those That's things what where I was gonna, yeah. it's so, it's become so exploited, you know, and this movie did really do its research, but it still ends up using that as kind of a, a plot device. But, you know, between satan- the satanic panic, between how it's been so regurgitated and redistributed in, in media depictions, it's almost very hard to say for me whether or not it does exist. I, I, right. yeah, it's, there's such a lack of clarity around it. Yeah. It's what we saw, like to your point in the satanic panic, what you saw in particularly with children during this is like, they would be forced into like a room with like a cop or an investigator or a detective. Yes. And they would basically be fed a story to the point where they believed it. Like the child could no longer discern fact from fiction because mm-hmm. you have this person who's in authority that is supposed to be a helper drilling that story into you to the point where like you believe it well past its expiration date. There's actually, there's another, there's a documentary on uh, false confessions. Mm-hmm. And oh yeah, that's a case, very similar thing. Mm-hmm. This, this case yeah. in, I think it was Baltimore where five men went to prison for years. All of them were innocent. And they were all convinced to give like false testimony against themselves because like, mm-hmm. they're like, they kept telling me I did it. And and I just eventually, I said that I did because I wanted to get out of the room. Like uh-huh. I didn't want to be in that room anymore. And I would say anything they wanted me to say just because it hurt so much being there. And it's kind of like similar to that. I would say it's very I love the prison. Yeah. yeah. My favorite presentation of, of multiple personality disorder would be Latka played by Andy Kaufman in Tax. Oh, God. Um, well, love that. Well, Andy Kaufman is always very smart in his comedic mm-hmm. choices. Um, there's yeah. just one other recommendation here is just there, there was a season of this podcast, Conviction, called American Panic, 
that go, I'm sure it overlaps with that documentary you referenced earlier, Mike, because I know they talk about that same family that got like really wrecked, uh, even though they absolutely did nothing the to their children, the Freedmans. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there's also this thing about in that in that season, I think they talk about uh, a, a child named John Quinney. But it was all these things. It's actually like really disturbing how many incidents of this there were where it yeah. was just mm-hmm. uh, that, that podcast did a really excellent job kind mm-hmm. of breaking down the whole thing. And I know Sarah Marshall from You're Wrong About is working on a book about this, too. So yeah. I, I think it's it's something that we've just had just enough time to reflect on that. I think we all are starting to realize what a, yeah. an essential like lesson it is. Yeah, and at some point I think I would like to for us to do a theme about like maybe memory or mm-hmm. repressed memory yes. or Just you know suggested memory. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which would be really cuz there's so much that I want to mm-hmm. untangle with it. Yeah. Because there yeah. are, you know, there's there there's like EMDR, there's brain spotting which taps into like actual memories. Mm-hmm. Uh and can be extremely therapeutic and also very difficult. And I know working with trauma patients myself, like I have a client I'm working with right now who like I can struggle with sometimes because we're so different in our like core values and beliefs. Mm -hmm. But I try to remember this is a person who's experienced so much pain Mm -hmm. and so much neglect and abuse that like you understand how this could happen. And I try to approach it from that perspective when I talk to them and you know, I, I try to have them imagine like all of these experiences they've gone through that they have so much difficulty separating from one another. It's like this giant ball of yarn that's been entangled and we're slowly trying to like one string at a time, pull away at it and and move past that one string and then move to the next one before we move forward. And it's hard. I will mm-hmm. say in this movie, what what you do see with Gordy is depersonalization. There are moments where he dissociates from his surroundings and everyone else around him. And he basically, I would say he acts like he's kind of a passenger in his own body, like he's no longer at the wheel. And I think you see Mm -hmm. that in the reveal. There are moments where he's like running towards Jeff and he puts his like arm out in a kind of recognition and then just sprints at him. But you see these moments where he's just like staring out the window towards a cemetery uh, or there's moments where he's working in an autopilot mm-hmm. and he just seems to not be there. And what's interesting is like Phil acts as his moral compass. Yeah. So mm-hmm. he has these hallucinations of Phil telling him like, wake up, like you're not yeah. understanding what's going on. It's- yeah. I think it's interesting a lot of these ideas of like repressed memory and stuff. Like, I feel like there are seeds of accuracy in there, even though they got like completely manipulated and, and oversimplified. Cause I know with, with trauma, like yeah, dis- uh, dissociation is a big symptom of it. And we're seeing that in Gordon, like that depersonalization, that dissociation, like when I was getting into EMDR therapy, she was asking me these kind of diagnostic questions about dissociation. And like, do you, it's just one of them was like, do you ever like do packages arrive at your house that you don't remember purchasing? Do you ever like find things rearranged in your home and you don't remember doing it? And I don't, I don't think I experienced that extent of dissociation, but there were other elements of it where I was definitely like, yeah, there's parts of the day where I'll just zone out and I, you know, and I just, and I feel really separate from everyone, Mm -hmm. you know, and that, that kind of thing. But it's such a, like any element of mental health, it's an incredible spectrum, but I think this movie does a really good job kind of showing how it manifests in Gordon. 
Well, and what I think is interesting, too, is that Gordon, I think he knows what he did because he tells Phil that yeah. he hit her. Yeah. You know, it, he just doesn't let himself remember the full thing. Mm -hmm. And I think like I have some what I think of as repressed memories, but a lot of it is just stuff I don't want to remember, yeah. you know. And if I really tried, I could. But then I also have and I mean, I don't want to step on another theme, but like I've also convinced myself that a scar I have is from something else mm -hmm. than what it actually is because I didn't want to remember what it was from, you know. And so I think it's interesting that like he allows himself to to trick like to let himself believe the thing that makes him feel better in this moment, which I mean, I could argue might be an element of this Simon kind of character of like, no, it's not that bad. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. it's, it's okay. Mm -hmm. You know? And you see like in room, cause he's in room four, 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 he's in Mary's room. Mm -hmm. uh, and when he is first at the cemetery, like you see the grave that he's standing over and it's Mary's grave, like just little subtle hints mm -hmm. here or there. One of the things at the end of the movie, like when he's in that seclusion room, he's tried to set it up to look more like his home, like with all the pictures mm -hmm. on the wall and they just cover it. And when he's like having that last quote unquote phone conversation, you see his phone and like it's broken. Like right. the whole back of it is off. There's no more number pad. So you see the the to the extent that he's lost like that touch with reality at this mm -hmm. point. And it's like. It's heartbreaking, but it's also like very chilling. Yeah, mm -hmm. I I love that just as an art art direction choice that those coll those collages in the cell. Mm -hmm. Again, there's so many things in this movie that like if they were done by a lesser filmmaker, um, would be like really corny and lame. Like you know, you've seen so mm -hmm. many variations of like the art that people make in mental institutions and in, in horror movies, especially. But like that collage art is really it's it is like they actually made art like it tells a narrative well, even when it's just mary's and then and then bringing it in like superimposing um gordon's stuff over it it's really effective yeah and that art mm -hmm. in the in the institute that that's not set dressing like that is the actual like that's how they found that room okay wow oh, i didn't wow. know that that explains yeah. it because it's so, like it feels really like I, I i almost like related to it i was like i yeah. get what this person is trying to express with 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 this collage art there was so many themes of like birth and death and how we're we are all animals and we're it's like you could read it really grimly but you could also read it as like we're all connected and like i found it really moving the only yeah. props that were brought onto the set like they made styrofoam tombstones and i think they had to like make styrofoam doors in a couple places mm -hmm. where they've been removed the hydro tub i think was brought in mm -hmm. but other than that that's it like everything wow. you see there like that's how they found it and that was wow. part of the reason. So they had like almost no set dress. Oh, and some metal hooks in one of the rooms that looks <laughs> metal hooks always look creepy. Yeah, yeah. You gotta Which I thought of as the Texas Chainsaw yeah. Massacre room. Yeah, of course. But otherwise, it's like they found it and used it. That's which great. Is yeah, it's really incredible. Yeah. Well, and thinking about just because we just covered um, Relic and thinking about the post it and like these pictures are like pieces of your life and pieces of your memory and something that activates this thing you want to remember or like something that activates this thing that you don't want to remember but you know you need to you know because there's a moment where it kind of turns dark and you see like these these death photos you know which I thought was interesting and again like 
I know they didn't create the art, mm-hmm. but they laid it out in the way that they showed it. Yeah. And just then there being a picture of Emma in the midst of that at one point. And then it's just, it's really, really, really smart. smart. And I think it also speaks to like the indie quality. Like this is when indie filmmaking is done, right? Yeah. When, yeah. you know, you don't have a bunch of studio heads saying, no, we got to show the whole thing. Add some murder in there. Yeah, you know? mm-hmm. yeah. It's it, this movie really allows the ambiguity and the subtlety and, you know, like there's mm-hmm. most studios would never never permit it's it's really smart smart movie it really is dig little nods like there's a blink and you'll miss it nod to the shining in that when jack wakes up in the freezer pantry in the shining he's next Mm -hmm. to like peanut butter and oreo Mm. cookies yeah two objects in his bag and and gordy's bag are can of jiff and oreos that's so interesting Interesting. i didn't pick up on that that's great yeah. Mm. And it's like, again, you know, I, I don't know if you wanted to talk about the deinstitutionalization thing, but I love that they brought that into the script in this movie. Mm-hmm. Again, if this was written and crafted by some like a lesser filmmaker, that would have seemed like really cheesy exposition. But I really like yeah. the way that and then like having the character whose wife is the town historian who's sort of like, mm-hmm. yeah, it, it's like all those things are so thematically linked to what the movie is about. Also, that it doesn't just feel like tacked on. It really feels organic to the whole film. And I and I love because it's like mm-hmm. these are they did their research on this and it's I really appreciate yeah. it. What's incredible about that scene, he's giving the tour and he's giving all of this history and it's not that not only that there's detachment from it, but there's like a cruelty in yeah. the way he describes it. Like he's just like so dismissive of these persons. Yeah. So, oh yeah. Yeah. So they're really quick, like basically in terms of what happened with facilities like Danvers, like by the mid fifties, there were about just over 558,000 persons with extreme mental illness out of like a total U.S. population of 160 million were institutionalized. That number by like 1994 had dropped to 72,000 with a U.S. population of 290 million. And the two things that are attributed to that mostly are the introduction of Thorazine as the first drug that had some uh, ability to treat like real psychosis and then and that was in the 50s and then you see the enactment of like federal medicaid and medicare in the i believe the 70s the population that would have been you know this wasn't like i have depression and anxiety and therefore i'm in an institution it was like basically about half that population up to 60 percent had were diagnosed with schizophrenia another 15% like severe depression or bipolar. Uh, And then that same percentage with like an organic brain disease, like dementia. So you have basically like up to 90% of that population with real severe mental illness. And And the other 10% were wives that husbands didn't like anymore. Anyway. The the other 10%, they uh, had wounded pride. I believe. Oh yeah. They, uh, the result is like once all these persons are released, you start to see severely mentally ill persons reappearing in jail cells and droves. And, and when you're in prison, when they're in jail or prison, they don't have access to the care they need. They're either missed or non diagnosed. They're abused by other prisoners and staff. 
they're deprived of essential medicine. By the 80s, just about over 7% of the prisoner population was believed to be suffering from severe mental illness. I also believe that specifically Ronald Reagan did a lot of budget cuts in the 80s that yes. slashed the funding of the, and that was kind mm-hmm. of like the final nail in the coffin that was for the a lot of this. Nail, and yeah. that, so you had a lot of people that just were then sent to the streets and then they would get arrested by cops who don't know how to deal with mental health crisis. And then you get what mm-hmm. is America today, you know? Yeah. Yep. Now, in some cases, you do see persons like go to like I worked for a comp, uh, Vinfen and Bamsey, which are like provide like group homes and daycare for persons that do allow them to live like a more fulfilling life. Yeah. Um, allow them community access, allow them autonomy. In some cases, they even, you know, have like part time jobs they get to go to or job skills training. So in some cases, like that does work out really well. Although I will say like a lot of us that worked in that kind of job, like, you know, at the time I had no mental health training or background. So it's kind of, again, what we found was like, that was the kind of work that I would say, and this is just anecdotal, heavily fell on like the immigrant population, like Haitian Creole in particular, that's mostly who I worked with. And it was because like nobody else would want to do that kind of like really hard, physically demanding and sometimes dangerous labor Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that was paid really poorly. Last thing on the deinstitutionalization, you know, to your point about Reagan and the cuts, basically between 80 and 95, the prison population increased by 216%. The overall population growth was about 16%. It's insane. It's absolutely insane. This is why I'm so passionate about like um, bail bond abolition and prison abolition, because it's it's legalized Mm -hmm. slavery. And it's also, it's it's absolutely like, it's the people that they don't want to actually help, like the mentally ill, and then people who they just see as disposable and can get to like create you know, cups for Walmart or whatever, really cheap, you know, so it's yeah. just appalling. I would recommend the documentary 13, yeah. which I believe might be on Netflix. It was but... at some point. I know it's a great, yeah. great documentary. Well, and speaking of um, other movies we may see, is there anything else we want to talk about with session nine? I think we, we, we covered a lot it, of it. Man. I think we hit it. <laughs> this is going to yeah. be a two-parter, I, mean, I think. Yeah. This might be oh, a yes, Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, there's a lot here. There's mm-hmm. like this is for such a small, quiet movie. There is a it's a deep, yeah. deep film, especially for us who we tackle mental right. health. <laughs> so let's skip towards other mental or other movies we see stuff in. You know what? And actually, I don't want to skip over other mental health topics because I think we've talked about just about everything. Yeah. But I wanted to just. Shout out Nyctophobia again. I would love to do maybe that as our summer a, series on phobia. There's a lot again. of fun <laughs> movies that would fit into that because it's such a like totally. horror trope. There's, I mean, mm-hmm. Lights Out, even mm-hmm. though that sucked. The short film version of it is good, but yeah. 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 So Fear the, of um, Nick's. Yeah. Fear, Fear of Nick Fury. <laughs> yeah. I really hate men named Nick. They terrify me. Nick Jonas is delightful. <laughs> I mean, I hear. Anyways. So other movies that we see this in, we're not going to dive into them, but we've already mentioned The Shining and Cropsy, and I actually didn't have any anything I just, that I could think you of. You see things like The Thing in terms of like paranoia, mistrust, mm-hmm. and this growing sense of dread that builds throughout. I, you know, I put one flew over the cuckoo's nest for like the before and after type mm-hmm. of thing you would see in something like this, and th- that's kind of what I had listed here. 
Well, and along that, we could probably say Girl Interrupted. Yeah, also. yeah, yeah. Anything that features that kind of setting. But I, I thought of Shutter mm-hmm. Island also. I mean, which we've mm-hmm. already covered. I realized I was about yeah. to go off on these rants about lobotomies. And then I'm like, wait, I did this already in our Shutter Island yeah. episode, which I think also has a lot of like the same psychodrama of like not knowing who is doing what and who's responsible for what. So I really think these two yeah. movies would be a good doubleheader. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and you know, I want to point listeners to our Shutter Island episode. If you haven't listened to it already, we talked about instant, uh, residential treatment was our topic yeah. then. And I think, you know, we talked about a lot of similar themes, but I think from a different angle. Um, okay. Well, and so before we move on, let's just mention the other film we're going to be pairing with this one for our topic of workplace anxiety. We are going to be watching Mayhem, which I am very excited about because I haven't seen the whole thing. I started watching it and I think I had to leave or something. So, you know, but I love Stephen Yu. Yes. And, and Samara Weaving. Yeah. Oh, is it Joe Lynch? It's Joe Lynch is the director and I love him. I'm excited. So check Mayhem out. That's going to be in two weeks and we'll tell you what our next episode is in a minute. It's, but now. It's so different and it's like the complete 180 in terms of like tone. Yeah, I it's was going to say opposite. like balls to the. I, I know, I, I yeah. Like I like when we have like these kind of uh, mm-hmm. thematically similar, but, but vibes are completely different. Yeah. Yeah. Um, All right. Well, speaking of vibes, uh, and now it's time for an uplifting moment. Oh, I took that so differently. Like, vibes. (laughs) When you said vibes, I'm like, oh, we got dirty there for a second. Uh, I mean, you know, you're talking about like a vibrator. (laughs) Yes. Oh, I've never. People say vibes so often, and I've never once connected it to vibrators. But now I will. Thanks, Mike. Now you will. Yeah. I'm also gonna cut that unfortunate sound I made out. All right, so self-care. This is anything, uh, this is the time when we share any grounding and coping techniques or any self-care that's been particularly effective for us. Grounding and self-care are little tips, tricks, mantras, or practices that help us get through the hard days and hard moments. And self-care is anything we do that makes us feel good or feel better mentally or physically. And (laughs) my self-care recently, I found my new favorite podcast and I'm super excited. It is the psychoanalysis. I'm getting, it is the, (laughs) it's um, a, a podcast called urban legends oh and i love it it's this british guy so i also am really digging his accent um but he tells an urban legend he writes a version of the story Mm -hmm. and then the rest of the episode is not necessarily debunking but like going through the actual cases Mm -hmm. you know like and i was listening to the first one i listened to was the killer in the attic and I had to turn it off until it was light outside because it really scared me. <laughs> and then it was just like really nerdy. Like, well, this happened in 1972 in a car park in some It was, it's delightful. And the episodes are like under an hour. It's just, I love it. I love those I kind love of podcasts. It. I always need more of them. So I'm writing that down. Yeah. Oh, dude, I'm going to be sad when I'm out of episodes because I'm binging it. But yeah, so that's mine. Um. I guess it's sort of like a bigger thing, but like, it's not quite like self-care or anything, but I I decided, did I talk about this already? I decided to move. I know I talk, I think I talked to to you guys about it, but Mm -hmm. just moving apartments. um, But I, I, I realized, you know, I've been in this apartment for the entire pandemic and um, I've decided to sublease it, which for me is like an extremely stressful risk, you know? Um, mm-hmm. I don't think I, I didn't think I would actually have it in me to initiate this process, but I did. And I'm just, 
and I found a new place and signed a lease on it. So for me, this is like a very bold move. You know, I'm very so anxious, mm-hmm. especially around like my living setting and stuff. But I really need a change. I need to not be mm-hmm. in this apartment anymore. We were talking earlier about being in the same place all the time. Um, I yep. need just a little more space and a little more light since I'm going to be working from home and spending all my damn time in one environment. And so I really did make the choice to do this. Um, and I'm really not looking forward to this whole process, but I'm looking forward to being in the new place. And I'm trying to like keep that in my mind's eye and just say, breathe and take it one step at a time. Otherwise it's, you know, some days are better than others with that. But uh, I, I am like a little proud of myself for like having the balls to do this. Cause I'm such a coward when it comes to change. Um, but like, I'm just very unhappy in this apartment. Uh, I have been for a while and I'm, I just need a change. So I'm going to do it. Yeah. Oh, well, that's great. That's I think awesome. you're going to be really happy. I, as a person who moved during the pandemic, because of a lot of the same reasons, like it was, it was not fun to move, but I am so glad that I did. Yeah. And I think you probably mm-hmm. will be too. So, hey, that's great. I've just been doing this really little thing. It's like a mindfulness thing where if I feel fine, my mind drifting as it often does, or if I have trouble focusing, I will, I just, it's one of the, tips I found from this like deck of mindful cards I keep in my office where I will just find like a random object and put it in front of me and then just take a um, little hourglass it's set for two minutes and I just have to write about all the things I associate with that object for two hmm. minutes That's interesting. so if I have like a can of like seltzer in front of me I'll write like it can be as random as like well it's drink it's cold ice but then like you know, I'll have it during barbecue season or it's like just anything I associate and I just can only focus on that thing for two minutes while I like really try to maintain my breathing in a nice even and be conscious of it. Um, and I found that like it works as a way from feeling a little bit anxious or I, I feel like my brain is getting pulled in too many directions to kind of reel everything back in and reset it and then kind of allow me some time to kind of get back to what I need to be doing. I love that because I desperately need something like that. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So I'm definitely, I will try that for sure. Interesting. Well, we want to hear from you. Do you have crocodile tiles on your ceiling? Do you sometimes call them crocodiles? (laughs) And what part of the body do you live in? And what's your grounding and self-care? You can answer all of these questions and more by following us at PsychoAPod on all of the socials. You can also join our Facebook group, the Psychoanalysis Podcast Support Group. It's a private and moderated group where we can share about episode topics, mental health stuff, or anything else that's on your mind. And you can also email us at psychoapod at gmail.com if you want to share privately. And our homework question for this week is, oh, this is a fun one. Do you have a good I quit story? And if so, can we hear about it? <laughs> and just, you know, I may want to keep it anonymous, but yeah, we want to hear your, uh, nope. fuck you, fuck you, Put fuck your you, name to it, you cowards. <laughs> or to, you know, do, if you, just to, you know, but if you already did it, if you already had the balls right. to do it, I feel like the, you know, the oh, that's true. Yeah. yeah. I mean, but obviously if you want to omit certain details or change relevant <laughs> names, right. you know, I, I, yeah. It's always a good idea. This could be your I quit story is well, I posted on uh, social (laughs) media for a podcast. And And then my my boss saw it. Yeah. And I got fired. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, that's just meta. But then you could file Um, for unemployment. So, you know, it works out. That's true. (laughs) Um, So next up for us, we have another comfort horror episode. Um, Fearless Halloweenies editor May is going to be joining us to talk about a film 
I love and I'm so excited. We are going to be talking about Fear Street 1666. We're probably going to talk a little bit about the other two as well. We covered them as commentaries for Patreon, but we are going to zero in on that one film. So make sure you watch that. And yeah, so that's us for next week. We loosely covered them as commentaries. We loosely covered them. We, yeah, we talked we a lot about in. that that um, shithole. I remember us all. The, there was something when we they were like in the uh, bathroom, like about to make out, and we like mm. I don't know. We there was some something fucked up that happened with us. Oh all. yeah, I don't remember. <laughs> but like peeing on the floor. Yes, this was it. We we made a joke about them pissing. I think yeah, and we all lost right. it. Yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so that's our, our in-depth analysis of those films. <laughs> well, check it out. We give you all the hard work here and on Patreon is where you just hear us fucking lose our minds. So totally. take what you yeah. can get. Well, speaking, speaking of Patreon, Mike, <laughs> what yes. movies should we talking about pissing on the floor with? So <laughs> we, uh, Laura and I just recently put up a fan commentary for Scream, which was a lot of fun to record. Uh, that is up there for our uh, $10 tier, the Mads Mickelson as Hannibal Lecter level. We got to get a couple things done this week. So it's a short month. So whoopsie. But I think what we're going to do <laughs> is like we're actually going to, if you're a patron, we were talking about doing Cobra Kai season four. And mm. now we might just change it up and give you our best I quit stories if you're mm. a patron because... It, you know, we get very loose on those episodes. Yeah. Um, and we can always but, do Cobra Kai next month, you know. It's yeah, not like we yeah. keep kicking Cobra Kai down the road. You keep, every month we're I like, know. yeah. I it was an illegal kick. Jump kicking it, yeah. yeah. Spin kicking it. But if you become a patron of the show, if you go to patreon.com slash podcast, we've got a couple dozen hours of bonus content up there already where we do like different episodes uh, or like different things we wouldn't normally cover here. Depending on the tier that you're at, you also get fan commentaries, treatment plans, and also our medicine chest where we give you our recommendations. We're always looking for new things to do. And to that note, uh, on this previous Friday, when the new Texas Chainsaw Massacre came out, like I hosted on Discord, like a little watch along with a few of our listeners. Like we put it up last minute just to give it a trial run. And it was really fun. We had a few folks come on and we were chatting Throughout the movie, uh, Nicole from Bodies of Horror joined us, the Bodies of Horror podcast. So we were going back and forth and I had a really good time doing it. And I think that's going to end up being uh, something we do on a monthly basis. And we have some other things I'm going to try because my thing is we want to give you the patrons as much as we can to show our appreciation, um, but also make it things that like time wise we can manage for you as well. Cause as, if, is, as we discussed in this episode, we all have jobs, unfortunately, yes. and uh, oh, mm -hmm. we're all tired. <laughs> I mean, we're, I tired. we're tired. We're <laughs> tired. Love to quit work and <laughs> fuck just, you. Yeah. <laughs> fuck you. <laughs> but yeah, go to patreoncom slash psychoanalysis podcast, become a patron today because really what it's all about is we want your money. That's can That's right. So just give us your money. Don't take it or just send me money. We can all quit our jobs. Just, you could just, I mean, honestly, if you want to just send us money without becoming a patron, I'm not saying no. Take that too, yeah. Just yeah. clean it first if it's sturdy. Yeah, we're not offering a laundering um opportunity for you. Yeah. That's not how money laundering works. You right. don't put it in the laundry. What? I've been under some false assumptions. <laughs>
Fuck. That's why I, I don't got quite understand how money laundering <laughs> works so myself. Fluffy. But I know yeah. it's not that. Well, I Corey is under strict instructions to never do it as a CPA. Yes. So, oh, um, okay. Every time we watch an episode of Ozark, like never. <laughs> Anyways, um, so let's wrap up with some plugs. So, Laura, where can we find you online? You can find me on Twitter at underalls, U-N-D-E-R-A-L-L-S. Uh, oh, boy. Much like. Uh-oh. Much like. It's best to send your pants. Yeah, much much like. Um, okay, much much <laughs> like the the towel you wear while, while showering all the asbestos off of your body in a plastic lined room. Ooh, that's nice. at underalls U N D E R A L L S on Twitter. I don't even know if that works because the uh, a towel is not truly an underpant, but it did cover David Caruso's junk in this instance. So I went with it. Yeah. I just was summoning up images, and I thought Caruso towel. Uh, it covers everything that is under and under your belly button, under it. your little uh, your yeah. little snail trail. What do they call? It? They used to call that Ooh. the line of hair that goes down. Who's called it? I like think your they call it treasure the trail. The no no square now. I think is what they call it. Excuse me. I call it the yes yes. <laughs> <laughs> I just like saying excuse me to things. It's just very I'm funny sorry. to me. Uh, yeah, the, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Uh, the fo- follow the the tra- yeah the treasure trail. Um, wow, this really went off the rails. I'm so sorry, everyone. It's been a long. Yeah, I, it has been a long. My brain is not firing it. Mike, oh, I don't have any excuse. I'm just someone weird. else say where you yeah. can be found. <laughs> Mike, where can we find you? After all this, do you really want to hear from me anywhere else? Right, haven't you had enough of me? Can you just leave me alone? <laughs> uh, you can find me at Mike underscore Snoonian over on Twitter. You can also find my other show, The Pod and the Pendulum, everywhere you get your podcasts. So you can go to thepodandthependulum.com, which is our new website, mm. basically. And we cover horror movie franchises. We're currently covering the Child's Play franchise. Um, by the time this goes up, we will have just posted Bride of Chucky. It looks like it's going to be a really fun episode with a great guest and a really good crew of our regulars. And it will be the fucking horniest thing we ever record. <laughs> oh, dear. Hornier than because, our recording about the Brand yes, of Chucky? Right. Because remember, like, on the other show, I tend to be a bit more unhinged. So, okay, okay. So, yeah, it's going to be just... Leave the kids at home for this one, my friends. <laughs> Get into your Dragula and go yeah. all the way. Yeah. Excellent. But find me there. It's a lot of fun. And after we're done, this franchise will be uh, doing Texas Chainsaw next. So right. I have also just rewatched all of them. And... <laughs> I'm sorry. That sound really gets me every time. <laughs> <laughs> it's fun. Um, hey, um, and you can find me making chainsaw sounds and dumb jokes at Jim Ferratu on Twitter and Instagram and you can find me co-hosting the Losers Club podcast talking about Stephen King I'm gearing up to talk about Dreamcatcher in March and you can also find me co-hosting the White Ladies in Crisis podcast I forgot how to say words and we are going to be talking about the hand that rocks the cradle and I'm writing and doing all kinds of stuff and I post it all on my Instagram you know, so just follow God. me. It's fine. I really felt so life leave your body as you were trying to promote yourself there. Yeah. Jen <laughs> is a very fun follow. Yes. Follow Jen. <laughs> follow Jen. I, well, thank you. 
delight uh, well i think it's delightfully <laughs> weird <laughs> some people think it's horrifying anyways um and that's me and that's our episode on session nine Thank you so much for joining us. Um, I want to give a huge shout out and thank you to Megan for joining us for this episode and for choosing this topic. Listeners, thank you so much for spending time with us. Please make sure to take care of yourselves and take care of each other. And with that, let's sign off. We came here to chew bubble gum and take care of ourselves. And we're, we're all out, out of bubble gum. gum. But mommy says I have some more bubblegum with Peter. Well, she doesn't. I'm Billy and I ate all I'm the bubblegum. I'm Simon gum. and I don't want you to have any more bubblegum. But, but mommy, I want bubblegum. Okay, I'll see your dad. What the fuck is going on here?